1: Today, our scripture comes from Genesis chapter 1, the very opening passage of the Bible. It's the story of creation. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw it was good. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seeds in it, and it was so the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed of every kind and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day now skipping ahead a little bit on the fourth day God created the the lights we see in the skies the sun the moon the stars on the fifth day God created animals the platypus the Hippo, all the, all the crazy animals of the earth. And on the sixth day, God said, let us make humankind in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in His image, the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. This is the word of God for the people of God. And now, Lord, would you reveal hidden truth to us? Would you enlighten us? Would you dispel the the darkness and fear that lives within us? Would you give us hope of the new creation that's possible because of you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, In recent years, there's a technology called LiDAR that's being used by archaeologists to discover archaeological remains that otherwise would have been hidden. For instance, in just the last couple of years, several... Major Mayan cities have been discovered in northern Guatemala and in the Yucatan Peninsula, as well as highly developed highway systems. One of the great mysteries of the Mayan people is why these big cities, you see the pyramid there, why these were just all of a sudden abandoned and left to the jungles. Um, but over time, the centuries, of course, the jungles have claimed them and they've been hidden and probably would never have been found without this LIDAR Lidar technology. LIDAR stands for Light Detection and Ranging, and it works by an airplane flying over an area and shooting a laser down on the ground, and it reveals these things that would otherwise be hidden. Um, But you don't have to have LIDAR technology to get what I'm talking about. Have you ever driven through the Old South on a highway and seen a barn that's falling down covered in kudzu? right? it's the same thing, it just hasn't had as long to work as the jungles of Guatemala. Or the ghost towns of the old Wild West. Or the abandoned cities and towns and factories of the Northern Rust Belt. Or if you wanna see an example today, drive down to Highway 192 in Kissimmee and look at some of the old hotels that have been abandoned and just in a few short years are being reclaimed by nature. You see everything, anything if it's left alone if it's abandoned if it isn't taken care of will deteriorate and eventually will return to the wild some of you may remember from your high school or college physics class anybody remember high school or college physics i just barely i remember taking it i don't remember a lot And so I have no right to bring up uh, the second law of thermodynamics. Everybody remember the second law of thermodynamics? Also called the law of entropy. The law of entropy. The law of entropy is defined as, as one goes forward in time, the net degree of disorder of any isolated or closed system will always increase. The degree of disorder will always increase. That's the law of entropy. One article that I read this week explains it this way. Entropy is a measure of disorder and affects all aspects of our daily lives. Left unchecked, disorder increases over time. Energy disperses and systems dissolve into chaos. The more disordered something is, the more entropic we consider it. In short, we can define entropy as a measure of the disorder of the universe. Think about it this way. In all of our kitchen drawers, there's probably batteries that are beginning to lose their charge. In many of our refrigerators, there's this week's leftovers that are starting to spoil. Metal rusts, wood rots, weeds encroach our well-manicured lawns. Paint peels. Relationships that are neglected tend to look neglected. Old photos and paintings start to fade. The clothes we wear start to fade and wear and become threadbare. Our bodies, over time, I'm sorry to say it, decline, right? Then we die. Then we decompose, right? That's all entropy. If you need a more quick example of entropy, I can take you to my office after uh, our service. You can see my desk. It's in a state of entropy. Or if you want to go for a ride, I can show you my back seat. It's in a state of entropy. Or if you really need an extreme example, you can come over to my house and see my garage. It's an extreme state of disorder and entropy. There is a Harvard scientist and author named Steven Pinker who writes this. The second law of thermodynamics defines the ultimate purpose of life, mind, and human striving to deploy energy and information to fight back the tide of entropy and carve out refuges of beneficial order, an underappreciation of the inherent tendency toward disorder, and a failure to appreciate the precious niches of order we carve out are a major source of human folly. Now, that's a complicated way to say that we can do something about entropy. I like the phrase, the precious niches of order that we carve out. Now, of course, he's talking about the physical world, but I think there's something true spiritually there, that we can create places that are maybe not entropy proof, but that we've pushed back. The entropy. And so, as you've heard, we're starting a new series today for Lent called Chaos, Confusion, and New Creation. Uh, there's examples of entropy and chaos all around us in our personal lives, within our own hearts and minds, in our families, in our communities, in our world. Addiction. War, poverty, politics, an election year especially, global warming, discrimination, hate, crime, immigration, issues that we're struggling with as a nation, all are indicators of chaos trying to be held at bay. What if you and I, what if the church had a role in carving out niches of order and peace and harmony in a chaotic world? Each year as we come to theme, we, we, uh, came to, to Lent, our, our theme is, is always kind of tangentially connected to the story of Jesus's journey to the cross and his sacrificial death. There's no question that when Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified and hanging on the cross, that that was a time of chaos and confusion, even for Jesus, I think but especially for his followers. But yet Jesus knew something that none of them could grasp. Easter was coming. New creation was three days away. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. In other words, the resurrection makes possible precious niches of order carved out of the chaos of this world. Maybe you took Latin in high school, if not physics, or maybe you've heard the term creatio ex nihilo, which means created from nothing. It's a theological term often. Theologians claim that God is the creator of everything. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, that's a fundamental belief that God created all things. It's based on the notion that there is nothing that exists that God didn't create, that before God there was nothing, and that it was from absolutely nothing that God created everything. Well, it's not bad theology to establish the the preeminence of God as creator. The problem is it just doesn't line up with Scripture very well. The Bible says something else, that God didn't create from nothing that there was something before God created. Did you hear it? Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, a darkness covering the face of the deep, while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. That's the NRSV version. I actually like the message version. It says, God created the heavens and earth, all you see and all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's Spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. Now you may be saying, well, that doesn't sound like much. That sounds kind of like nothingness to me, but it's meant to be a substantive nothingness, a tangible emptiness, a gripping darkness, the words formless void, soup of nothingness, bottomless emptiness, inky blackness. There was darkness and there was water. There was darkness. The Spirit hovered above the waters, darkness and water, a deep, dark, watery, abyss. Now, let me just say, I don't know that we're meant to take any of these images as literal. I think they're meant to be metaphors for us. Metaphors that convey that before God started creating, there was chaos, disorder, formlessness, vacuous darkness. In particular, these two images of water and darkness. In ancient times, Jewish people had an inherent fear of water, Think about the number of biblical stories involving water that are inherently negative. Next week we're going to talk about Noah and the flood. You know about the story of Moses parting the Red Sea and then drowning Pharaoh's army. Uh, Think about Jonah being swallowed up in the belly of the whale, right? Think about Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Think about this old testament mythological carrier character called the leviathan sea monsters who lived out in the water and then there's darkness anybody not afraid of the darkness right that's just an inherent fear in all of us but something we need to notice in this story is that god doesn't come along and obliterate the darkness or the waters Rather, in the creation story, God sets boundaries on the darkness and the water. God pushes aside the chaos and gives it a boundary, a limitation. Here's the example. On day one, Genesis 1, 3 through 5, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness He called night. Did he obliterate the darkness? Did he end the darkness? He set boundaries on the darkness. You get to have this part of the day, but you don't get to have all of it. But here's the thing, on days like today, darkness encroaches the light, doesn't it? That's a metaphor. The darkness is always pushing its way back into the light. Lisa Sharon Harper says, God does not obliterate the darkness. Rather, God names it and limits it, puts boundaries on it. God's government has, governance has transformed the world from a cesspool of overwhelming darkness, despair, sorrow, misery, destruction, and death into a world where darkness is limited by light. Skipping ahead to day three, Genesis 1, 9 through 9-10, God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together He called the seas. Again, God doesn't evaporate the oceans, the water. He sets a boundary. You can't go past your banks. You can't go past your shore except sometimes it does, doesn't it? Sometimes the waters rise, and that just happens. And then comes the sixth day. This is us. God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. That's a key word, hold on to it. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. If you skip ahead to the next chapter, we hear about God creating a garden and placing a human in the garden. And God gives the human one job, to till it and keep it. Now the word that we get, English word we get for dominion, basically means to rule. In Genesis 1, it says, God has given us rule over God's creation. And that can be a negative term because we can all think of people, rulers, who have misabused their authority, used it for personal gain, abusing those in their charge. But I don't think that's at all the kind of dominion that's implied in Genesis chapter 1. We are given dominion in the image of the Creator who has total dominion, ultimate dominion, king over all creation, if we add it with Genesis 2, that our dominion is much more like gardening than it is ruling. Metaphorically, our job is to till the soil of creation, to cultivate the fruit of creation, and to pull the weeds, whatever those weeds might be. Our job as dominion over creation is to keep and protect the boundaries. The boundaries separating order and disorder, light and dark, emptiness and abundance, goodness and evil, and the persistent, never ending, constant, eternal struggle with the encroachment of those metaphorical weeds that come into our lives in every possible direction. So, speaking of weeds, five years ago I moved into the parsonage, it's the church owned home for the pastor. It's a lovely home. I'm thankful for it. And the outside looked really nice. And there were a couple places in the yard where there were beds of sword ferns. One in the side yard over by the driveway. They looked nice. I didn't have any problem with the sword ferns except in the last four and a half, five years, they keep expanding and moving into more areas. They're somehow in my potted plants. They're climbing up the palm trees. They've taken over flower beds. And so I've begun the work of eradicating the sword ferns. They've got to go. Anybody tried to pull out sword ferns? Yeah, you know the devil I'm talking about. The problem with sword ferns is that at the end of every fern, on each of the the petals of the ferns, they grow spores year-round, constantly, and they release them, and it blows in the wind to other parts of your yard. Then, under the roots, the roots aren't enough, under the roots there's these little bulbs, or they call them tubers. And if you pull the, the, the fern out to eradicate it, you've also got to pull out all those tubers because they can grow back. It's a, it's a double whammy. It's a, it's a two-pronged attack, both from the air and from underground, trying to invade my yard. And it's hard work getting them out. It's back-breaking. The roots tangle into other plants that you hope to keep The tubers are hard to get all of them. They always are some remaining. They make my arms itch. And after just a short time the other day, I filled up my entire trash can. And so I had to put, you know, that's all I can do today. Where am I going to put them? And you know, they're all going to grow back in a week with all this rain we're having. It's It's a battle. It reminds me of the curse in Genesis 3, 17 through 18. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles... And sword ferns, it shall bring forth for you. It doesn't say that, but it should. It's a metaphor, right? But it's a pretty good one. Chaos is always trying to wind its way, encroach back into, worm its way into your lives. This constant, swirling, invasive, ever-encroaching chaos. Those sword ferns would literally take over my yard, but not as long as I have dominion. But it's going to be a slow, painful, intentional process to remove them. It's going to require vigilance and watch. But once they're gone, in their place is the potential for something new, something more fruitful, something more beautiful. Again, Lisa Sharon Harper writes. What it means to be made in the image of God is to be given the call and the capacity, all things being equal, to exercise dominion in the world, to steward the world, to serve and protect the world. Another author by the name of Matthew Fox says, creativity happens at the border between chaos and order. Chaos is a prelude to creativity. We need to learn, as every artist needs to learn, to live with chaos and indeed to dance with it as we listen to and attempt some ordering. We need to study the chaos around us in order to turn it into something beautiful, something sustainable, something that remains. Isn't that what the world needs? Isn't that what we need? Isn't that what the world needs from us? And in some ways, isn't that what Jesus did for us with his cross and empty tomb? So I just want you to think for a moment. What's the chaos that needs to be creatively tamed or tended in your life, in your family, in your neighborhood? The Consumerism, prejudice, addiction, anxiety? Depression, some marital conflict, some family conflict, some work conflict, anger or hate. And what are the weeds that God is calling you to eradicate in other parts of the world beyond your immediate sphere? Violence, inequality, unjust laws, war, hunger, the affordable housing crisis, discrimination. Friends, you and I were made in the image and the likeness of the Creator who set limits to the chaos, who pushed back the water and the darkness, and who endowed us with dominion over the chaos. So how's the weeding going in your corner of the garden? Let's pray. And so, Lord, we confess that sometimes by neglect or distraction, we let the weeds grow. We let the darkness invade. So, Lord, remind us that you've called us to be gardeners of your world. Lord, help us to push back the darkness, to push back the waters, to push back the weeds. And in their place to create something new and good and just and beautiful for all. Help us to do that, Lord. In our own hearts, our own minds, and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future.